Welcome to the AWS Tech Chat. We're solution architects based in APAC, and we help customers adopt the AWS Cloud Platform. In each episode, we talk about the latest and most interesting technical developments in the world of AWS Cloud. We bring you the AWS Roundup and deep tech dives into topics of interest. My name's Shane Baldashino and I'm here today with the AWS Tech Chat podcast. And today I have joining me the one and only Dr. Pete Stansky. Hi Shane, hi listeners. It's always good to be back on the show and uh, I must say I'm super excited uh, for us because uh, uh, we are extra protected, Shane. We are. Tell me about that, Pete. Yeah, look, uh, a real quick headline. Um, on the 23rd of January, the Australian Cybersecurity Centre has awarded AWS the protected certification status for 42 of our cloud services, Shane, which means that uh, we are on the uh, certified cloud services list, uh, which means that you, know, you can run very secure government workloads on AWS and pay nothing extra. Awesome. So yeah, guys, good news. If you're doing anything for, for the government or if you are the government department, um, go check it out. Uh, there's no extra cost. Um, just use our services in Sydney. Super, super cool. Good one. All right. So Pete, AWS today is a far cry from where it was 10 years ago. A far cry where it was when you joined almost seven years ago. Oh, yeah. And it's different to when I joined almost three years ago. Heck, it's different to where it was two weeks ago. The short of it is, AWS is always changing, and I'm sure as a listener of the show, you can relate. And that, that means that we're, between the two of us, we've got 10 years of AWS experience. It's pretty good. Wow, we're getting old. This is internet time we're talking about too, right? It's, it's almost like Amazon time also. Amazon time. So, look, we've grown up, we've matured, we've rounded off some of those rough edges, and we offer services covering the whole spectrum. You know, we now have the kitchen sink of services. <laughs> it's north of 100, and on this show, you know, we mainly focus on the main services, such as, you know, compute with like ECS, EKS, Lambda, EC2, databases like such as RDS and Dynamo and so on. But what about the other 100 or so services that often go hidden away? Whilst often niche to the masses, they are important too, and they are often the unsung heroes. They may not have an impact on the end users or customers, but they can often affect developer and operational productivity. And today, this is a show for the not-so-common services, and we're going to explore a few of those services that often sit behind the covers and are instrumental to most customer build-outs. But before we do this, Pete, why don't you give us a summit and stats update? Yeah, look, the, uh, look, I think this will be a really fun show, Shane, but uh, before we launch into it, yes, the summits are back. Um, our global free events that bring the cloud computing community together, uh, really to connect, collaborate, hang out, um, and it's basically the localized version of what we call reInvent, and reInvent isn't really a marketing event. Uh, these are actually learning conferences for you to come along, learn something really interesting. Um, now, we aren't going to look f too far ahead because, uh, as I mentioned in the last show, the Sydney Summit's coming in late April. Uh, but just to give you a, a bit of a quick heads up, uh, we've got a couple of um, events popping up, hopefully in your neck of the woods. So Milan is kicking off on the 12th of March, Tel Aviv, 13th of March, Santa Clara on the 27th of March, um, and Bogota, Colombia on the 28th of March and Paris in 2nd of March. So uh, in terms of new regions, uh, I have nothing to announce. We still have the 20 regions uh, with, of course, Stockholm being the latest one to launch in December. But CloudFront, Shane, has added six additional points of presence. Uh, so since the last recording, uh, we are now at 166 points of presence, which means that um, five of those new edge locations are in North America. So uh, two in Atlanta, Chicago, Dallas, and Houston. And also the new capacity increase has also been added 
uh, in a way, which means that uh, in those locations, you can expect up to a 50% increase. And also, by the way, uh, the sixth ed edge location is in Paris, a lo lovely place. Uh, and as always, every CloudFront edge location enhances the delivery and performance of all of your applications should you choose to use them. Absolutely. <laughs> um, you know, CloudFront, really popular, and it's a great way to reduce latency in your applications. Absolutely. So, Shane, we talked. you started off the show talking about, you know, some of the services that may not be at the forefront of everyone's conversation. Um, shall we just dive into a couple of those? Let's do it. Okay. All so, right. where do we kick off? So, cloud security is the highest priority at Amazon, and as a development principle, it should be embedded first and foremost in everything you do, not, you know, as an afterthought. Yeah, it should be the first thought you have, the middle thought and the last thought, whatever it is that you're doing. Exactly. So, and speaking of development principles, I need to digress here. As I read my youngest, she's two at the moment, a book called Underwear Do's and Don'ts, written by the <laughs> excellent Todd Parr. I want to see how you get a British together, Shane. <laughs> Let's give it a go. All right. So, and if you have young kids getting started to read, I highly recommend them. And funnily enough, you can buy Todd Parr's books on Amazon.com. So, stick with me here. Uh -huh. So, this is probably more than a dad joke. Okay. So, do have lots of different kinds of underwear and as a person with uh you know lots of different kinds of underwear mm -hmm. don't wear them all at once and there's a picture of a kid with you know 10 pairs of underwear on their head so if i was authoring a book on development standards two pages i would create would read something like this don't use hard-coded credentials do use aws secrets manager don't use hard-coded connection strings host files and whatnot do use systems manager parameter store because, Pete, hard coding is bad and parameterizing and obfuscation is good. And these two services that should be a part of your IT toolbox. And before we jump into these two hidden gems, Pete, I need to ask, given your coding pedigree, have you ever used a host file? You can be honest, we're all friends here. Yeah, yeah. Look, I have many a times, but I have a question for you, though, Shane, to bring us back to the, to, to the kids' story. So, so have you changed host files in your underwear? <laughs> I've uh, changed host files. <laughs> Maybe, maybe don't answer that question, yeah. We don't want to leave the, our audience uh, too graphically um, impacted here. But look, certainly um, modifying host files, um, hand-tweaking things as you're building out your dev test environments. Um, and I think all of us can say that we've hopped on and made those host file changes to make sure that we can actually resolve uh, you know, um, those domain names to the right IP addresses. And certainly this, is be this becomes a real big important thing um, on a larger scale as you build more complex environments. You want you know, assistance and functionality. And there's a huge need for configuration management and managing those parameters. And you know, I've had many customers who actually went off um, some banks, some startups, some mid-market organizations, some digital native businesses, actually all went off and ended up building their own solutions on how to keep tabs on some of these values and key value pairs um, that they actually may need to uh, control access to DNS records or other systems. Yeah. It's a big job. It's a big job. And often when you're doing those migrations, you know, it's that hard-coded static value that mm -hmm. often catches you out. Oh, so, yeah. look, I mentioned these two services, and let's start what they are and why you should use them. And okay. because Systems Manager Parameter Store has been with us for some time now, let's start with it. But perhaps it hasn't been, hasn't been getting as much airplay as Lambda, right? It, it definitely hasn't. So, originally called EC2 Parameter Store when it launched a few years ago, it's now part of a Systems Manager service. AWS Systems Manager Parameter Store provides a centralized store to manage your configuration data, whether it's plain text data such as database strings or secrets such as passwords. Cool, so it saves you doing it yourself, right? For sure. And this is a good thing as it allows you to separate your configuration data from your code. And after spending some time initially with Systems Manager Parameter Store, I, you know, I looked through the lens of a key value store to which I can put 
data in, manage configuration data in plain text and secure strings, and you know take it out again. So but, how do you store a chain? I mean, is it just a key value store, or is it a bit more than that? It's a bit more than that, and you know that would be taking a very simplistic view. Mm -hmm. So parameters that you create can be tagged and organized into hierarchies. You know, helping you manage your parameters more easily and cleanly because you know we want to be writing clean and efficient code. Oh yeah. For example, you can use the same parameter name, let's call, you know, dbcon, something I okay. always used to do when I was writing classic ASP. And I can have different hierarchical paths. So it could be dev forward slash dbcon or prod forward slash dbcon to store different values. Okay, so if I've got a CD, CI CD pipeline to build my continuous, you know, integration deployment models, I could automatically create this as well, right? You could, exactly. Yeah. So I could have version one to version 100. You could, yeah, mm -hmm. via SDKs. Very, very handy. And, and that's probably the real power, right? It is. So why not DynamoDB? Why not DynamoDB, all right? So I think there's a few reasons here. So yes, DynamoDB is also a key value store. But firstly, cost. Parameter store is free. Okay. DynamoDB isn't. And why pay for a service when it's not? I think the next point is, you know, this approach is really an anti-pattern here. Just like using a host file, it's akin to probably using a sledgehammer to crack a walnut as I need to curate, feed, and manage my DynamoDB tables here. Okay. You know, okay. this all the smarts are built in to sure. systems manager parameter store and that leads me to my last point is integration so there is a lot of integration in the form of CloudFormation, sdks so what this means is you can easily have systems manager parameter store as part of your infrastructure as code pipeline got it so okay. as an example let's imagine you want to use systems manager parameter store to get the latest version of an ami to the very handy Thing to have, right? Because a lot of people actually have, you know, when you have one, that's simple, but when you've got hundreds of Amy's um, and you've got them tagged belonging to different departments, you've got a golden image that somebody else has to reuse, uh, this, is, this is probably when it becomes a real gem. Yeah. Right. So, as an example, we push out new Amy's regularly with the latest security updates, you know, for all supported operating systems. Going back to the book that I'm going to write, you know, maybe in the next week or so, we don't want to be static. We don't want to be hard coding those AMI IDs. And, you know, back to your point there, you know, it's those golden images in our cloud formation. We want to be decoupled and leverage parameter store to parameterize this. And we can take it further by using hierarchies for different environments. So I can specify the latest AMI ID for my environment, mm -hmm. but I can take it one step further, allowing me to cut clean code. So I can have, you know, dev forward slash you know, a specific uh, AMI ID, I can have a specific one for prod, and that can all be stored in the same parameter. Nice. You know, a personal touch here is I've used Systems Manager Parameter Store in the past when it was called EC2 Parameter Store to connect a Windows EC2 instance to a domain. I gave demos of that when that first came out. It was the coolest thing. It just automatically did a DOM join for you, and there's a, there's a member server inside your AD. Where were you to help me, Pete? <laughs> so... Obviously, Pete could probably tell us more about this, but if you aren't familiar joining a Windows server to a domain, as Pete was just mentioning here, you know, you want to connect that member server to your Active Directory domain, you need to provide it a few things. So the domain controller and you need domain average privileges. Now, domain admin credentials are not the sort of things you want to have hard-coded or floating around, even on a post-it note. So this is easier than actually what you think here. So the first step in this process is we need to create our parameters and set their values. I can use a console, the CLI, or being Windows flavored, perhaps I want to use AWS tools for Windows PowerShell. 
Assuming I'm using the CLI or even Windows PowerShell, the commands are pretty similar. I use the AWS SSM put parameter to put the DNS name of a domain, the domain admin username and password into the parameter store. And what's also cool is you can put like descriptions in there, like a, like a text string, so you can actually figure out what the heck you've actually put in there as well, because uh, some of these names may not be meaningful. Documentation is good. It's yes. always good to be able to comment and yeah, read through back your code later. Um, all right, so the commands are almost the same, but for the password, we don't want to store this as a string value because of, you know that would be plain text. Plain we text, wanna, that's bad news. That's bad news. You know, Domain admin password, plain text, yeah, not such a great idea. So we want to store this as a secure string and we can use a KMS key to encrypt the string to which we're going, you know, which is going to be our password. Perfect. So we use a KMS service, so a key management service to actually then encrypt that information. That plain text becomes ciphertext. Exactly, right? And then once we've added these credentials, we can use commands in our user data to execute the domain join on the initial creation. For those who aren't aware, Pete, can you give us a rundown on what user data is? Yeah, it's, this is taking me back a while. Look, when I first joined AWS, I loved this feature. And the idea is that when a machine is booting, so whether it's a Linux box or a Windows, Windows machine, um, we actually in, you can actually inject text that actually gets run um, at, as, a, as a super user or, or as admin on those um, booting instances. Uh, and you can actually pass in um, a user data field which contains configuration information, parameters, or actual scripts, so either PowerShell or, um, or VBScript you could also run, or Bash scripts. So the, this is really useful because if you're booting up your machines and you want to get your hands on these special parameters, you could actually extract them as a part of the user data to be able to then go and seed that machine with a particular configuration. You just taught me something there, Pete. VB script. That used to be my thing back then. <laughs> I always thought it was just PowerShell from the Windows side. I don't know of if things. anybody writes it. Yeah, you could certainly, uh, in, the, in, the, in the actual um, uh, braces that you described, the um, user data field, yes, you could define whether it was there PowerShell or not. I so, could do my uh, uh, wscript.echoes and, oh man, and that's create objects. Yeah, knock yourself out. <laughs> All right. So before, I was using the put parameter to you know actually put my data into EC2 sorry, into Systems Manager Parameter Store, mm -hmm. I'll have it there. But obviously now we wanna read this out, so I need to use the get um, parameter. So, you know, being Windows based, I'll often use PowerShell. So I can just use the get SSM parameter value commandlet, and it's pretty much the same. It's, you know, get SSM parameter value, the value of what I'm trying to retrieve. And if it's a secure string, I just put an option, convert to secure string. It's really simple as that, as well as passing in a KMS key. Oh, cool. That's just magic, right? It, it works just like magic, mm -hmm. and that's the beauty of it. I can retrieve a password, um, and I don't even need to know, you know what it is. Yeah, perfect. That indirect access to something really secure is a really nice blueprint. Uh, so to go back to your kids, uh, don't wear too many underwears uh, all at once. Um, this is a great example of just doing just enough. Just enough. And just like that, we've just described a pattern to join an instance to a domain. No usernames and passwords are listed. So before we shift into Secrets Manager, there are plenty of artifacts and examples available online for Systems Manager Parameter Store. So before you go and reinvent the wheel, it may be prudent to hit your favorite search engine for code snippets. Indeed. And look, for those folks that I just mentioned before who've built their own, uh, it's well worth thinking about actually getting rid of and retiring some of those systems. I've seen people build, um, you know, SQL-based databases that actually held values. I've seen people build APIs that programmatically give you this information back. Use the service. It's Use nice and simple. the service, yeah. So I just described Systems Manager Parameter Store. I think it's awesome. I love it. And I illustrated you can even use it to store secure strings. Mm -hmm. So, Pete, why do I need AWS Secrets Manager? 
Ah, Shane. Well, this is uh, the service that allows people to really earn the stripes and ensure good IT hygiene across the board, right? So um, we know it's a good security practice to regularly change your passwords, right? Um, That's but there's hard always, work. But there's an overhead, right? In doing so, it can be a bit of a pain. And this is where the um, systems manager really comes in and shines. Um, so it really helps you know, everybody in IT um, to support the full lifecycle of passwords and secrets um, you know, and rotations within your organizations. So what it does, it actually helps you with the rotation, management retrieval of things like database credentials, your API keys that you may be actually using. Um, and uh, it's a very important element because a lot of that stuff, you just do not, as I said before, we don't want floating around. Um, so it's, it's really handy for secrets. Uh, and the idea is that um, you have the option to use a string or a secure string uh, values. So, you, so you, you now need to basically define uh, what you're storing. For, so things like um, you can store things like uh, Amazon IDS databases, uh, strings, um, other types of databases that you're using or API keys, as I said before, uh, that you actually don't want anybody to see. So as you define these values, um, you go through the options, and it also allows you the ability to rotate credentials after a period that you've defined, which is really cool. So that if you have an expiry date, you want something to happen, and usually people forget that. So the way you can deal with that is that we, can, we actually let you execute a Lambda function. Now this is optional, um, and it's really important to stress that uh, you know, we only recommend this after some serious testing to make sure you know what you're doing because you don't want things expiring, um, lambda, uh, lambda functions firing off and things changing. Um, so make sure you apply sufficient due diligence in testing to make sure this thing actually operates because once it's automated, it's, it sings, but if you get it wrong, it could be quite disastrous. Mm, imagine if you've uh, changed a password on your database and you've got 100 web servers trying to connect to a database engine. I yeah. think that could cause a few problems. That could seriously break your th authentication process. Uh, look, and you probably wouldn't even see it until the connections are torn down because of databases. You authenticate a connection. Once the connection has been established, it stays there. The credential could have expired, been rotated, and if it's not passed on to those appropriate locations. So that Lambda function becomes really useful because you can then ping back those hundred web servers you just talked about and have them be notified by SNS or via other mechanisms uh, where they can actually go and pick stuff up. So very useful. Very useful. You know, digressing here, when I was writing code to connect to a database, mm. classic ASP, C Sharp, and this probably goes back to my pedigree not being a developer by nature, is I would always tear it down after I've done what I needed to do rather than keeping the connection open. Yeah, look, it's, it's, it's a very useful thing to consider because again, you know, when you have a established connection uh, for many things like TCP IP sockets, all kind of stuff, in some cases, you know, you may actually get out of whack with what the, what the actual authentication mechanisms have actually been used. And if you've changed those credentials, um, if you have these long running in some cases for days or hours or in some cases weeks connections and they drop off, can you imagine debugging that problem? Oh, it used to work last week. We made nothing, nothing change in the environment, but oops. I think it's a balancing act between performance, not having to tear down connections every time, and closing them down, maintaining that hygiene. Yeah, so very, very important. So Lambda is your friend here to help you with the rotations and notifications to make sure all those changes have been propagated uh, throughout your entire organization. So Secrets Manager offers you know, Secrets Rotation, which is also a built-in integration feature for things like um, Amazon IDS for MySQL, Postgres, and Aurora. So in other words, you know, it is directly integrated into those services, just as I mentioned before, the Secrets. Very, very handy. And also for API keys and OAuth tokens are also supported for third-party services. Wow. So just on that, Pete, I have a customer who makes heavy use of Secrets Manager for mm -hmm. rotation 
of credentials to GitHub repos. Nice. They use hooks that Secrets Manager provides not only to manage GitHub, but then they wire up any such rotated passwords back into their source control platform, mm-hmm. their build agent, etc., giving them tighter you know, control over their custom IP. And because Secrets Manager integrates with CloudTrail, there is an audit trail around this. Yeah, and look, just in case you did push your um, changes to your Git repo, and we've had lots of customers who've accidentally pushed out the uh, API keys into the public uh, space, and uh, while we actually monitor Git and we will notify you of that, um, we also find people actually find them ahead of us sometimes, um, and you don't want your account compromised. So yes, very important. So Shane, I'm really glad that you mentioned this because uh, the other aspect of this is also that you can do an audit trial, which is very important for many of our customers who essentially are operating in you know, heavily regulated organizations or have certain governance and compliance requirements. And obviously, like I said before, at the start of the show, security is really important for all of us. So in this case, um, on the security front, uh, you know, like Parameter Store, um, you know, we give you the ability to actually integrate with identity and access management and with KMS. Uh, and because um, uh, Secrets Manager, uh, you know, gives you all this functionality of rotation, uh, you do get an audit trail of when things have actually changed. But by the way, just it's worth calling out though, uh, that um, the sequence vendor is not a free service, right? Unlike Parameter Store, uh, you know, as, as we record in the show, it costs you 40 cents uh, per secret stored each month, and we charge you five cents per 10,000 API calls. And uh, that's a lot of API calls for five cents. It is, that's a lot. So the difference uh, between systems uh, manager, primary store, and sequence manager, well, when you think about it, uh, two really useful services that actually arm you uh, with the ability to be able to have you know, very um, helpful, clean ways of controlling uh, your software configurations, your passwords, and having a really solid hygiene around lifecycle management uh, of really important strings and configuration information um, that generally a lot of people will, over time, um, have a lot of complexity in managing. Mm. So Pete, have you noticed today that in some, not all modern browsers, but browsers such as Chrome, they'll visually notify you if you're not accessing a website in a secure manner? It's really, really important. At least you know that you know, this website may not be the site you're looking for. Mm. But how annoying is it when you go to a website that is secure, but they have you know, an invalid common name? You know, Remember the common name is the fully qualified domain name you specify in mm. the CSR, the certificate signing request, or even more embarrassing, the SSL certificate has it's expired. expired. It happens to so many organizations. That's mm. a horrible thing to go through. So given Losing my, trust, right, with your customers. It, it's trust. It is absolutely trust. So given my background in hosting, I look at this you know, through the lens of Somebody amateur who's hour. Lived, someone who's lived through this. <laughs> uh, but stuff like this even catches out the largest of organizations. I remember one of the world's most popular online gaming services, we won't know names here, had a well-publicized outage over Christmas in 2013. You don't want to be a company. You don't want to mess up something as simple and trivial as that, right? And the root cause was an expired SSL certificate. Happens a lot. So most monitoring platforms allow you to monitor a lot of these parameters, such as certificate expiry. And obviously, you should be monitoring your website. Goes without saying. But as SSL becomes more commonplace and secure communications become the standard, there's work and overhead in managing certificates, dealing with private keys, keychains, rotations, and so on. So Pete, whilst not being super hard from a technical aspect, mm-hmm. there's a bit of work to do. And just like services like DNS, if you get it wrong, well, you know, you really get it wrong. You really get it wrong. Yeah. And another shining star in many IT organizations toolbox is AWS Certificate Manager. So Shane, do tell us what is it and how how is it going to help me? Let me tell us. Tell our listeners here. 
So Certificate Manager is a service that lets you provision, manage and deploy public and private SSL, TLS certificates for use with AWS services and your internal connected resources. SSL TLS certificates are used to secure network communications and establish the identity of websites over the internet as well as resources on private networks. But the other also important aspect is it helps you to ensure that your bits traveling through the uh, cyber interwebs are also encrypted. In transit, yeah. So yes. in short, it's a CA. So, you know, so, so a Certificate what? authority. Certificate authority. Okay. So what is that, Shane? So I think here's the gold in this service and why I really love it. So. AWS Certificate Manager removes a time-consuming manual process of purchasing, uploading, renewing SSL TLS certificates. You know, where was this service in the early, you know, 2000s when I hosted about 15,000 domains, managing many of these with SSL certificates. Probably not as common SSL back then as it is today, but you know, it is a time-consuming process. So let's say you have an ALB and it's an application load balancer and provision a public SSL certificate to your website. Well, AWS Certificate Manager is going to handle the renewal automatically and transparently. Within one month of the certificate expiring, Certificate Manager will install a new certificate on the given destined endpoint. So speaking of endpoints, this automatic integration is available for public and private services for Elastic Load Balancing, Amazon CloudFront, Amazon API Gateway, and AWS Elastic Beanstalk. And look, when this thing got released, I love playing with it. I set up my API gateway with my own you know, certificates. I give it my custom DNS record. Um, it's really, really cool. So Shane, you mentioned public and private certificates, just to pick up on that. Um, now, there may be some that you know, I'm not really familiar with the difference between a public and a private certificate. So can you please explain the differences? Sure, okay, so the components of a private CA are the same as a public CA. Mm -hmm. However, public CAs must issue and validate certificates for resources on the public internet, whereas private CAs do the same but only for private networks. I think one key difference is that applications and browsers trust public certificate authorities automatically by default, mm -hmm. whereas an administrator must explicitly configure the applications to trust issued certificates by private CAs. So our certificate authority, Amazon Certificate Manager, is a trusted root CA. Plus, public ACM certificates are verified by Amazon Certificate Authority. Any browser, application, or OS that includes the Amazon root CA1, Starfield Services root certificate authority will automatically trust ACM certificates. So in short, you know, our certificate is built in to your browser, your operating system, and SSL libraries. Out yeah, there. really, really important because uh, in my in past lives, if I when I used to run my own private root internal CAs, you know, for a Windows domain, uh, you actually have to deploy those through Active Directory. Lots of lots of effort, and um, even when we use some, you know, um, certificates, uh, we had to manually roll those, and it was expensive to do it externally too. Absolutely. So you you know, in the past, you know, if you're using a non-trusted CA, you need to install the keychain into iOS Apache. And you may get browser compatibility or component compatibility issues. Correct. I think you know that was probably more commonplace back then when SSL certificates were actually quite expensive. The price has come oh, down yeah. like a hundred bucks. I recall it's probably yeah. more than that. You know, yeah. I think well, it depends what certificates we're getting, which is another another um, conversation in its own right. Yeah. So speaking of, uh, you know, how do you provision a certificate? You may ask. So yes. you can use the console, the CLI, or Amazon Certificate Manager has APIs and SDKs as you would expect. Um, you can add additional domain names to your request if users want to reach your site via you know, multiple names. Mm -hmm. So SSL pop quiz here, Pete. Oh yeah. Do you know what type of certificate that would be if I had multiple common names 
on my SSL certificate. Right, because normally you have one name in the actual certificate, right? Yeah, uh, shanesawesomedomain.com. Shane's, yeah, uh, you, you can have, you can actually create a certificate that have multiple names in there, as you call it, and that is called a SAN certificate or a subject alternative name certificate. And what's interesting with those is you can have lots and lots of common names in there. So if you have multiple domains, uh, you can just get the, get the one certificate. So and then have in there you know, a whole bunch of different ones. However, having said that, um, there is a bit of an attack vector, which I came across to this many, many years ago, and it's still valid today, and that is if you're using a SAN certificate, uh, people can actually inspect the certificate. Not everyone does it, of course. When you browse in the web, you don't really look at it, um, unless it's a warning one that, it's, that doesn't actually match a domain. Um, but if you actually start to unpack those, you can actually discover what other domains may be hiding behind that particular certificate. So very, very interesting. Um, be mindful of that. But having said that, it's very, very popular. Yeah, they might have multiple host headers configured. Yeah. Correct. How, how, how did I do on a quiz? Uh, very good. You right? know, if one day if I get back to web hosting, uh, maybe in a future life. <laughs> Give me a call. I know who to hire. All right. So back to creation here. If it's a public certificate, you need to validate that you own a domain name. You know, we don't want to uh, setting up a, a phishing website here. Yeah, stealing somebody else's. Stealing bad, someone bad else's. All right. So. The way Amazon Certificate Manager does this is via DNS or email validation. With DNS validation, you need to write and modify your public zone and write a record as specified by Amazon Certificate Manager. After you use a DNS validation once to establish control of the domain, you can obtain additional certificates and ACM will renew existing certificates for the domain as long as the records remain in place and the certificate remains in use. Mm -hmm. You don't need to you know, go through the validation process again. If you choose email validation instead of DNS, emails are sent to the domain owner based on domain registration records requesting approval to issue the certificate. Pretty standard stuff here. And after validating that you control each domain name in your request, the certificate issued is ready and to be provisioned with other AWS services. Yeah, so make sure your email is working. That's probably the key message here, right? Have those MX <laughs> records set up. That's right. All right. So... You can do standard certificates, SAN-based certificates, wildcard certificates. But one thing to note is at present, AWS Certificate Manager does not provide EV or extended validation certificates. So those are the certificates that make your URL in your browser, in most browsers, go green. Yeah. And a bit of a ninja tip here, whilst AWS Certificate Manager is available in all public and government regions except in China, if you're using Amazon Certificate Manager with Amazon CloudFront, you must request or import the certificate into the US East, that's a North Virginian region. AECM certificates in this region are then associated with a CloudFront distribution, distribution and distributed to all geographic locations configured for that distribution. Awesome. Good tip. Good tip. All right, probably would have caught me up. All right. So Pete, we've spoken a bit about the tools that help you support your website development and a mechanism for providing encryption in transit. Mm -hmm. So websites today do many things, you know, a far cry from the day 20 years ago when I was, you know, opening Notepad, Windows user, not <laughs> Nano, um, but some things evolve like fine wine. You know, when I was, you know, getting into this, the first thing I was creating was websites with forms and I was using SendMail, you know, SendMail CGI, um, on under Linux. Um, scripts. Yeah. Scripts, yeah, yep. Yeah, CGI bin. You don't often see that in the, the browser, in the, in the URL email. these days. Um, ASP components to generate email based on forms and so on. Email and forms are still a thing. I, you know, use them on websites that I fill out every day and I'm sure you use them too. But Pete, things have evolved and just like fine, line, fine wine, we still <laughs> need to send emails. But how do we do this? We use SendMail CGIs. No, 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 no. Don't do that. We don't? 
No, don't have to anymore. What do we do? <laughs> well, look, uh, what do we do? Well, we can use the Amazon Simple Email Service, or SES, uh, which is, uh, like I said, fine wine's been evolving over time. And I think email really still is the killer applications, right? It's been designed for so many uses over the years, and uh, it continues on. No matter what we say about instant messaging, um, there is still something really powerful about being able to get to an email. Um, of course, you know, uh, text messages and IMs are still king in some places, um, but email hasn't been killed off. So uh, it's really, you know, it's, it's, it's a, the most reliable and cost-effective way of getting a message across. And for us, the SES service is really, you know, highly reliable, cost-effective for businesses of all sizes uh, to keep in contact with your customers. Um, the other thing about it is that, uh, you know, the good thing is that you can easily retrofit your most existing code bases that have been using uh, email backends um, and to adapt to the SDK that we actually give you. Um, you know, there's a, actually an SMTP or Simple Mail Transfer Protocol interface uh, into SES, so you can just retarget and repurpose your application. So you can change the endpoint from localhost or your mail server name to something like email smtp you know, us-us-east, amazon.ws.com. You really plan that localhost part. Yes. Yeah. Well, you know, if you mess a local host or your host file, uh, so fundamentally, you know, you can very quickly integrate SES into your applications. But um, that's not it. Is that there's so many other things you can do with it, Shane? No. Yeah. So look, a call out here is yeah, you can transition um, and still use SMTP, but SES SMTP endpoints require that all connections be encrypted using TLS. Oh, and security and ACM coming to play here. There we go. Yeah, so you know, nice we're segue. looping it all back. And SES supports two mechanisms for establishing TLS encrypted connections. That's a mouthful. It is today for me. All right, so start TLS and TLS wrap up. So check the documentation of your application library to determine whether it supports start TLS or TLS wrap up or even both. Mm -hmm. There are examples on how to do this in our documentation in Java, Python, C Sharp, et cetera. But look, in most cases, based on my experience, experience it should be seamless unless unless your application is old and i mean really old as you know smtp sending on either port 587 or 2587 has been a thing for probably 20 years now and a ninja tip here is ec2 by default throttles all traffic leaving port 25 and i just mentioned 587 and 2587 for open ports but ses still does support 25 so, so it's backward compatible, right? Backward compatible, but 25 is not, you know, secure. So how does it work? So, you know, after you connect, so this is like, you know, if you mm -hmm. were to issue a Telnet. To port 25. Yep. yep. SES endpoint, port 25. We're going to issue an eHello command. So our response will announce that, you know, we support the start, S start TLS SMTP extension. Your client or your library or whatever you're using will then issue a start TLS command, initiating the TLS negotiation. When negotiation is complete, the client issues an e-hello command over the new encrypted connection and the SMTP session proceeds normally. So this is kind of like you know passive FTP, if that's something you're familiar with, where you start on one port and then you negotiate the and then one. move on to the next one. Yeah, and look just on the e-hello, uh, two different versions. It used to be called the extended hello command, or uh, in some cases, people actually thought that was actually a typo when the original uh, mm -hmm. SMTP protocol was developed. Just a little segue here. So Shane, so now that we have um, legacy application support, uh, we can talk about different interfaces, more modern ways of getting access to the uh, SES service through things like HTTPS endpoints via SDKs, um, because you can actually send email also through the API, uh, and it provides you know a whole bunch of different uh, ways of sending a message over and above the basic protocol we just talked about. Yeah, very good, Pete. Can you tell us more about them? 
Sure. So you can basically call the API in a number of different ways. So one of them is basically essentially the, the raw query request and response mode, which is probably the most advanced method because you are calling the API directly. Uh, you can also use the AWS SDK, and this makes it easy to basically um, call the service uh, from your applications, uh, it takes care of authentication, takes care of all the, all the request signing, logic retries, error handling, and a whole bunch of low-level functionality that you don't necessarily have to focus on. And fundamentally, the other one is, going back to scripts, is the CLI interface. Um, so if you do have to run uh, a command line, uh, be it on Windows or maybe on uh, a PowerShell commandlet um, on your Windows box, you can actually also access the service as well. So regardless of whether you're using the, the SES API directly or through the SDKs or the CLIs, um, the service provides you two different ways to also send that message depending on how much control you want over the composition of the actual body, if you like, or the, uh, the envelope um, of your email. And there's two ways, and uh, the first one is really formatted mechanism, which is really how uh, SES takes care of much of the heavy lifting as uh, you supply the from and to addresses and the subject and the message body. Um, and it fundamentally emulates the classic send mail functionality, which many of us may have used. Very cool. Yeah, and the other one is the raw format where you actually have to manually compose every part of the email message specifying your own email headers, your MIME types. Um, so if you experience formatting your own emails, and many, as many of you may have, um, the raw interface gives you probably the most control over the composition of the entire message um, and its associated envelope that actually be sent out. So uh, plenty of options for sending uh, something as important as email, 20 years old, uh, but still, so, still king, uh, in cyberspace. Mm. So Pete, I like to think of you most of the time as a pretty morally and upstanding citizen. You know, you've given me advice when required and you know, you're an all round nice guy. People trust you, but don't think I'm gonna continue here with all the niceties. I don't know where you're going with this. <laughs> there we go, got a point, all right? But the point to this is in the real world and in the internet, you need to be a good internet citizen. And there are certain things you should be doing to practice good email sending hygiene. Very, very important. So, so I think what you're talking about is reputation. Is that what you're talking about? I'm talking about reputation here. So look, if you use the SES service, uh, it's really important because you also pick up the reputation that's associated with the sender, right? So for us, we provide the service. We have IP addresses that carry a certain reputation. So deliverability is a very important part of um, delivering your emails. Having an email is one thing, but also having it delivered from the right IP addresses. Um, there are many uh, real-time blocking databases out there uh, which actually track the IP addresses of the sender. Yeah, and look, a lot of mail agents, mm -hmm. you know, upon receiving an email, might you know they might look at SPF DKIM records, but they'll also probably query a whole heap of real-time block lists to say, hey, is that you know IP being listed? Yeah, and you know. You, don't, you do definitely do not want to get your IP listed on a real-time block list. No, you don't. So, so the thing that we do is when you use the service, we actually monitor the bounce rates of how many emails we try to deliver on your behalf because that also has an impact on the reputation. So if you have an old database which has you know 20% of users who have got invalid uh, email addresses, they will bounce back to you. So that'll actually impact our reputation overall. Because once we deliver those, um, those systems that check where they've come from. So therefore, the IP reputation is affected. We have a lot of uh, great uh, goodwill <laughs> and trust. So uh, you certainly want to be very mindful of that. So what we will do is come back to you and say, hey, listen, um, this is how you're tracking. We've actually got a dashboard, a reputation dashboard that you can you can actually you know, query and see and better understand your bounce rates and also complaints because people can report spam or emails that they which are unwanted. So all of this stuff can actually be recorded. And um, 
for example, if you also send email to a known spam trap, where which is really an email alias designed to be hidden, um, and that's a nice way of actually catching that someone's been actually scraping your web pages and pulling out email addresses, which are not listed anywhere publicly visibly, but maybe hidden in HTML. Uh, this is going to also affect your um, your reputation. So we track all these things these things for you. So having said that, you know uh, we do a whole bunch of clever things around deliverability. You get to leverage our reputation of IP addresses. Um, we also give you a plethora of information around the bounce rates, uh, as well as uh, the complaints that we, you, you may be receiving on the back of the emails we've delivered. Um, and also today, you can use CloudWatch um, to alert you to basically monitor uh, some of these important met uh, these metrics proactively so that you can actually pause sending your emails if you discover that perhaps those emails are not being delivered. So uh, this is via, Cloud, uh, via CloudWatch. You can get an SNS notification uh, and also use Lambda to be able to pick that up and actually stop what you're doing and better understand how you are tracking in email delivery. How's that, Shane? That's a great tool, great set of you know, functionality behind the SES service, which people may often just think of is just for email. Exactly, and I think what is cool is this dashboard because before this dashboard existed, I'm not sure exactly when it uh, came to be. You know, you would do it yourself. You need to do that. this yourself. You need to parse the logs from SES. And now we've got this dashboard, you know, showing this plethora of information, which is pretty cool. So Shane, uh, look, uh, I want to keep chatting, but as always, we are running out of time for this show. Mm. We gotta wrap it up. I think we do. Some great nuggets of information today. Hopefully a refre refresher section for most of our listeners. We started the show with development do's and don'ts and I introduced you to my budding aspiration to be an author with Secrets Manager and Systems Manager Parameter Store and when it's applicable to use these services. We then pivoted to AWS Certificate Manager. We explained a little bit about public and private certificates and how AWS Certificate Manager, regardless if you're a developer or an operational person, makes life easy. And then we close off with a simple email service, right? Which is one of our most reliable and simple ways to send email um, so that you can actually worry about just sending a message and we take care of the actual delivery. That we did. All right, mm. Pete, thank you for your time today. And as always, listeners, we love to hear feedback. So please do contact us on AWS Tech Chat. That's one word, AWS Tech Chat at Amazon.com. And until next time, keep building. Keep building. Bye for now. Bye for now. Signing off, we really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you liked it, tell your friends, tell your colleagues, and tune in again to learn about AWS Cloud. Please subscribe to AWS Tech Chat by visiting www.awstechchat.com.